Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, College for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Friday, April 21st, we are studying 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. In today's text, St. John helps us to rejoice in the truth that we are God's children now, so that we will live in that identity by practicing his righteousness instead of sin's lawlessness. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Rick Jones. Pastor Jones serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. As we get started today, Pastor, give us some context. We're in 1 John 2 and 3 this morning. What should we know about the epistle and what St. John has been saying so far that will help us with the context today? Yeah, so St. John, son of Zebedee, one of the sons of thunder in the Gospels, uh, one of the inter, inner three of Jesus's apostles, the one whom Jesus loved in his Gospel. And, uh, you know, we, we, we read the Bible a lot as pastors. We studied the Bible a lot. Um, always new things are brought out to us, never put two and two together. This John, as well as John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus. Um, John's mother is Salome, the wife of Zebedee, who apparently is Mary's sister. That was a new one for me. I thought that was interesting. Opens up a whole new world of relationship in my understanding of the gospel, this writer and that sort of thing. But that's who's writing it. Um, scholars think it's somewhere between 85 and 90 AD, um, maybe a little later if you go with some scholars who think this is a cover letter to accompany the gospel uh, that bears John's name, which is kind of a neat idea. But it's written probably to um, the Christians in the Roman provinces of Asia, maybe Ephesus specifically, general letter of, of apostolic concern for the people uh, written by that eyewitness, John, um, seeking to encourage and lift up Christians in that late first century after some of the congregations had, you know, had problems arise within them or some of the Christians had maybe fallen away and, and people are nervous about what the future holds, especially as you know, persecution is perhaps starting to break out and we've got, um, uh, you know, different heresies and things creeping up. Within the letter, John is warning about false teachers. The, the thought is that this is likely early forms of Gnosticism that really took off in the second century, uh, but he's, he's reaffirming the truth of Jesus, his earthly life, his physical resurrection, uh, and, and all that that means for the believers. And it helps bolster the faith of those who live uh, in the, the aftermath of the life of Christ, those who are taking uh, the truth of his life, death, and resurrection into their, their lives as believers. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, like I said, I alluded to this perhaps being a cover letter for the gospel. I think it's a neat idea, especially as we look at this letter, how many ties there are to the themes in the gospel. But sending a letter of encouragement and hope right, as that companion, saying, remember who you are. Remember what God has done for you. Through Christ, you are made children of his love and mercy. Oh, and by the way, here's my firsthand experience with Jesus the Christ, whom the Father sent as the embodiment of his love. It's pretty, pretty neat idea, but regardless of the specific purpose of the, the letter, it serves to remind the audience of the true love of God that is demonstrated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It also reinforces what it means for those who have faith in him as the Messiah. Um, Christ's passion and mercy change the whole life of the believer. We are now God's children, and everything we do is out of his love that's been embodied in us. Christ doesn't just give salvation to the faithful. He also reshapes their lives to reflect his grace outward. And today's selection shows that in spades. Uh, it is a continuation of the argumentation he's been making in the letter so far, and the rest of the letter will flow out of this as well. All right, let's jump right into the text. We are in 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 28 today. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of devil, the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's our text for today. That is 1 John 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. All right, so Pastor Jones, as we get started in verse 28, John says, now little children, and we've seen mm -hmm. that address from St. John, little children. I'm going to talk more about that when we get to, I think, the very important connection John is going to make with why he uses that phrase, little children. It's not just that they are John's children in the faith, but they're actually children of God. So let's, right. let's hold off on the children for now. We'll come back to it. But talk to us about that that opening command that he has, abide in him. Take us into that language. Right. So it absolutely is a command. It's an imperative, right? Believers are to abide, which idea, to remain, to stay, 
to be constantly in Christ. I, 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 what comes to my mind is the idea of clinging, right? You cling to Christ. And if we're clinging to the Savior, the result is confidence for the believer. At the, at, at, and then he says specifically at his second coming. So when Christ returns, we will be confident if we are situating ourselves always in Christ. If we truly live in faith, there should be no shame. If we are scared of Christ's return, what does it imply about our faith? Um, you know, I think of, of my children when maybe they've done something wrong, they might try to hide. Um, they, they know the shame. They're, they're fearful of the, the parents' return. I remember maybe, maybe I did similar things when I was little. Um, Never. <laughs> uh, all the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? If we're scared of our parents' return only when we know we've done something wrong. If we've been misbehaving, we hide out of shame and fear of punishment. It's it's Adam and Eve in the garden, right? After they eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they know God is coming and so they hide themselves. They're ashamed of being naked and ashamed of not listening to him. Uh, so John is using that imagery, may, maybe not you know deliberately calling back to the garden, but that's what comes to my mind, that idea of a shame-filled child. John's urging the readers and the hearers, you know, probably would have just been read in, in the original time, uh, urging them to remain in Christ, which means everything Christ has done for us. We are to cling to it so that we have confidence in our place with him. We cling to his perfect life. We cling to his compassionate death. We cling to his resurrection. We cling to that ascension, knowing that the promise is for us. Um we look at this through the idea of, of our faith. Our broken, sinful self is eclipsed by the holy righteousness of Christ. As our faith grows, we begin to deny ourselves more, and we cling even more fervently to the cross. We're confident in his righteous acts of sacrificial love, so any doubts in our own selves are erased. We no longer need to try to justify ourselves with imperfect works of our own. Instead, we lean fully and totally and completely on the perfect works of the Savior. That's the confidence in our faith. The result of that faith is then our lives will reflect the love of God. As we abide in him, our faith produces the works of love that are reflections of the love we first received from God. We become those who practice not just righteous things, but specifically his righteousness. That's what we're getting at. If we dwell in Christ, our lives reflect that, and we are confident in what he has done for us. Mm. You, know, you you talked about the connections to the gospel that John wrote, and the yeah. language of abiding in Jesus or abiding in his word is all over the gospel, perhaps most prominently, at least the first place I think of, is in John 15, where Jesus speaks of himself as the vine and his disciples yes. as the branches. Yeah. And he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Yeah. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we really, we really need to get this first verse of our text correct so that we do get the order straight and so that we don't misinterpret the verses, well, even here in this own, in the end of chapter two, and especially as we get into chapter three, 
when John talks about practicing sin and practicing yeah, righteousness, yeah. this language of abiding Jesus at the start, we really have to keep that in mind so we don't misunderstand what he's going to say later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is this has been John all along. As you know, John kind of will sometimes talk in circles and he'll he'll bring up a topic <laughs> and then he'll further elaborate on it later. And if you take just one verse all by itself, you won't get the full picture that he's painting. Right. We're going to see a verse... ton of repetition later on with that idea of practicing righteousness or practicing sin. Yeah. Right. And it and it all starts with abiding in Jesus. That that is is going to be the key. If we if we miss that, then we will misunderstand what he says elsewhere. Yeah. And I, I do think that that all of again all of what we're going to look at today also helps us to understand this idea of having confidence and not shame at his coming. As you said, if there's a if if we are feeling shame at Christ's coming or if we're not looking forward to it, that can be an indication that something's wrong in our conscience. Right. That that there is a sin that's troubling us and so we're trying to hide from Christ rather than look forward to his his coming with great joy. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I, I think what John's going to talk about in terms of practicing righteousness instead of sin helps us to avoid the other error that was common, especially among the times of the Old Testament prophets, when you had people looking forward to the day of the Lord, not with a confidence because they were abiding in Christ, but in a sort of, well, we're God's people, and so it doesn't matter how we live. <laughs> and I think yeah. you know John's going to hold those two things together so that we can approach the day of our Lord, the last day, with confidence because we're in Christ— and for no other reason, and we can avoid those two errors that we see in the scriptures. Right. Right. Absolutely. All right. So little children abide in him so that when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So let's let's start talking about this children language, because I think John even brings it up before we, well, we've already got the little children in verse 28, then the idea of being born of him at the end of verse 29, and then chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Let's let's talk about this yeah. familial language of being God's children. Right, so the chapter opening up immediately by explaining why that closing statement of chapter two is correct, why it's true. Uh, those who abide in Christ have confidence. They're unashamed of his return. Why is that the case? Because of their relationship with God. God's incredible love is what does this, but it is a specific quality of love, right? It's it's the source of confidence. It's a source of good works, but it also describes who his people are. It describes us. It's described as the love between a father and his children. It immediately, for me, you know, the explanation of the introduction to the Lord's Prayer in the small catechism. Our Father in heaven, what does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children. So that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children, ask their dear father. We have nothing to fear from the heavenly father when we have faith in the divine son. His love for us is the protective love of a father for his children. 
It is the love that provides for all our needs. It is a love that is familial. It's affectionate. It is sacrificial. Right? A father gives everything for his children, and God has demonstrated that for us as he gave us his life in the work of Jesus. We are absolutely his children, and that is our relationship to him. He has provided and given everything that we might receive the things that we need, the things that bring us hope, the things that bring us joy, the things that bring us comfort, the things that give us that assurance that we are cared for in all things. Again, earthly fathers, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, I should say, talk talk more about the fact that this is who we are. John doesn't say this is who you have to make yourselves, or it's not who you will be in the future, but it's who you are. Talk talk more yeah. about the fact that this is a present reality and why that's important. Yeah. So not only is is John describing our relationship, uh, it, it's also reinforcing the reality that exists. Um, going off of that heavenly father providing for earthly children, um, we know that a father is going to take care of his children, whether they're faithful or not, right? Even the gospels talk about this. Jesus talks about um, even sinful earthly fathers give their children the things they need. So how much more is the heavenly father going to provide for his children? Uh, That argument from the lesser to the greater, it's recalled here as well. John's encouragement and a reminder that we are who he says we are. We are his children. He goes even a step further with the encouragement as he says, not only are we called children, we are emphatically and actually his children now. It is our current identity. It's not an empty title or only a future promise. We are God's children right now. It is our present reality that points us to that eternal assurance. Again, if, if, you are declared something by God. It is true. If he's declaring you his child, that is something that you know is true. Uh, it is a guarantee. I, I think of elsewhere in the New Testament, you know, the language of adoption is used. Mm. And then even, I think it's in Titus, the seal, the guarantee uh, of, of our adoption as sons, we, we have that. It's a legal declaration when a child is adopted. You get all of the rights that come from being a full member of that family. Whether or not you enjoy those rights is something else, but the objective reality is true. You have been declared a member of that family, and so you get the inheritance that comes with that. You get the name that comes with that. You get the position in society that comes with that. And for this case, that's how we are with God. We are members of his family. He sees us and cares for us as his real children. And we get to enjoy that love and that nurturing as long as we are abiding in it. And so it continues to produce that, that faith in us. It continues to produce the love and we get to enjoy those benefits. What do we inherit as children of God? Well, first and foremost, the forgiveness of our sins, which removes any shame, any doubt points us to the assurance of that salvation. We are redeemed. We are given that new start. We have a new life, and we get to live it out with the confidence of being his children. And ultimately, we have a place in his home, in his kingdom, on the other side of this life. That's what a father does. He provides for his children, and we are provided for here and now, even as we struggle through 
this broken world. Hmm. You know, another point from these verses that we want to get right as we think about what it means later to practice righteousness is to notice the language of love that's used here yes. again. This is another key word for John, and you, you've mentioned it several times in, in talking about the fact that we are children, but it, it stems, again, not from what we do, but from the Father's love for us. And thinking, again, in the context of John, when we think about God's love for us, one of the key passages is John three sixteen, that yeah. God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this love that God has for us isn't just a, it's not a feeling, it's not just a sort of, I'm just going to let it go, but it has it has real flesh and blood, and that flesh and blood is is Jesus, yes. who has died for us. So and talk more about that, the love of God in making us his children. Yeah, so he he demonstrates it all for us in, in what Christ has already done. He, he comes and is the Messiah. He is the one that's going to take the sin of the whole world. I mean, this gets stated flat out in a couple verses from now, <laughs> the mission of Christ. Uh, but he's going to come to take away that, that sin, that barrier between us and God, welcoming us into the family. That is, that is the flesh and blood reality of what Jesus did. And that then is given to us by virtue of our faith. Um, John tells us this is what he's trying to encourage and remind us of in this letter. Um, we know we're going to be misunderstood by the world because the world misunderstood Jesus. And if we're reflecting his love, they're going to misunderstand us. But John wants us to be uh, united, have courage, and be encouraged with one another. And he tells us that we should expect this. They don't comprehend true love. They don't comprehend true life. And so they're not going to understand the changes that happen once you, they are set free by the gospel, the changes that are happening in us. Um, he tells us that he wants us to know the truth. At the end of this letter, he says it um, flat out, right? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, we believe in the name of the Son of God. We believe in Jesus. We see what he has done and know it to be true. It's the promise that was given to us. We aren't surprised when people don't fully comprehend that because they haven't been shown the truth. Um, they aren't going to understand why we do the things that we do because they don't understand Christ's death and resurrection. They don't have the same knowledge of the truth. They do not know the same love. But that does not stop us from living out his love in all that we do. Quite the contrary. Because our lives have been changed by the love of Christ, our actions now reflect that change and our conduct serves as a witness and testimony to his love. This is a real now and not yet. It's, it, it's painted very clearly here. We are not perfect in this life. That will have to wait until the return of Christ, the fulfillment of his kingdom. We will Then we will be made completely like him. But then that, that's the, the not yet. However, even here and now, we are his children. And that is a real identity. So our lives are transformed bit by bit as we abide in him to reflect or shine forth the love of God. A real change happens because of the real blood of God that was spilt. There is a real change, a real forgiveness, a real um, transaction that happens spiritually for us. And it affects our 
earthly physical lives. Um, it's with the spiritual change, with the changes, the outward changes that we see in how we conduct ourselves. We call it sanctification, right? Christ's death on the cross for our sin is our justification. Our sanctification is the process of our lives being conformed to his will, to his love. And our faith, again, is the key in both cases. By our hope or our faith in him, and that is in his work on our behalf, we purify ourselves as he is pure, that is without blemish. Our lives look more holy and less sinful. This doesn't mean we are sinless. Only Jesus was without sin. But again, our faith will produce that fruit. And again, going back to as you quoted John 15, 5, if we abide in him, we bear much fruit, but apart from him, we do nothing. Mm. This language of now and not yet that John very specifically uses here in verse 2, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Yeah. That now and not yet, I think, is really important. Again, as we understand what John is going to say about practicing sin or practicing righteousness, that, that we know that we are God's children now. That is our reality at this moment, and it's true of us. Yeah. Even if we don't experience all of the effects of that right now, mm -hmm. because the sinful flesh does still cling to us. And this is, you know, sometimes as Lutherans, we will talk about the reality that right now we are simultaneously saint and sinner. Yes. So right mm -hmm. now, you and I are fully saints because God has declared it so. You emphasize that. We are saints. We are God's children. Yep. At the same time, in this life, we are also sinners. Right. And that's, I, I think that's the, the not yet then, is that we are still waiting for this sinful flesh to be completely yep. removed. Yeah, we're waiting for so that. Yeah, so that all that I know is that is being a saint, of being a holy one of God, not only by the declaration of God and receiving it in faith, but also... You know, as, as we talk about in the in the explanation to the second petition, that we would uh, lead holy lives here in time and there in eternity. Right, and and that's that's what we're still waiting on. That's the the not yet, and God grant that it would come quickly. Thy kingdom come. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when He appears, we shall be like Him. That's the hope that we have in Christ. We're going to keep talking about our hope in Christ from 1 John 2 and 3 on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Rick Jones this morning. We will be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, April 21st. We're studying 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10 with Pastor Rick Jones. He serves as chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, prior to the break, we were talking about this language of now and not yet that St. John gives us, especially in chapter 3, verse 2. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the not yet, especially as, you know, he says that we, it hasn't yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Mm-hmm. And and thinking about the this not yet, help us to talk more about that. What does that mean for us? Right. So in this life, you know, things aren't perfect. We, we stumble, we fall, we, uh, I mean, physically and spiritually, right? We have times where we still commit sin. We have times where we will get hurt. Um, and all of that will eventually pass away. And we're not, we're anticipating it. We're waiting for it to happen so that on the other side of things, there is no more pain. There is no more sickness. There is no Ill, more illness. There's no more sin. And therefore, no more consequences of sin. There's no more um, shame, no more fear, no more guilt. It's all removed because sin has been removed from our life. We are not yet in that reality, but we are practicing for it. We are preparing for it as we live our lives abiding in Christ. We have been given the, the atonement. We have been given his sacrificial love that reconciles us to the Father, and now that produces these fruits, these these good works, these loving acts that we perform outward for our neighbor. It, it is who we are now, but is not yet fully realized as we still struggle and, and w- with sin and struggle with the brokenness of this world. But we practice, we rehearse, if you will, for the life to come and our, our lives filled with love, overflowing with God's mercy, show that that is who we are. Even though it is not fully realized, it is what we are preparing to be. So just trying to to connect the dots between what we're saying here and what we talked about earlier, this now and not yet, especially as we experience the not yet, and we we do fall into sin in this life, that that reality combined with the fact that I am God's child now, that should then drive me to go back to the very first verse we talked about, to have confidence and not shrink away from him when he comes. So that the, the more I experience the effects of sin in this life, the more that I'm going to desire that day when Christ returns, and I know the fullness of what it means to be like him when he comes. Is that a fair way to, to connect these two things? Yeah, I think so. I, again, to go back to the analogy of the child um, awaiting the parent's return, if we know we have been disobedient, disloyal, misbehaved, uh, we look forward to it with shame and apprehension. But if we've been doing the very things that we've been trained to do, shown to do, if we are, in this case, acting with love and grace, then we should expect his return with anticipation of joy, anticipation of gladness, of um, all all of the the positive side of things versus the negative side of things. Right. Ran out of emotions. Yes, that's right. So as <laughs> as we experience the now and not yet, we long all the more and look for that day of Christ's return with confidence instead of shame, because we abide in him and in yes. his word. Yeah. 
which, as you said, begins to bear fruit in our lives. We, we do begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. He does work in our lives so that we flee from sin and run toward righteousness. And so we, we get in this last section, verses 4 through 10, we get this language of practicing sinning, practicing righteousness. There's plenty to talk about here. In verse 4, John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So let's let's start with the connection between sin and lawlessness, and then we'll work our way into the, the idea of what does it mean to practice something. Yeah, so... We'll start with sin and lawlessness. Yeah, so it's it, he's using it to describe the identity and life of those... Uh, he's making the contrast, those who hope is in Christ versus those who do not. Um, here he's doing it by connecting sin and lawlessness. Sin isn't just an unworthiness or deficiency. It is also actively breaking the law. In this case, it is God's law. Sin is any violation of God's created law, which would be a denouncing of God himself. It's a recasting of ourselves in God's position as if we know better than the one who laid out the whole universe. So in this sense, to break the law is to try to set up a new law. And so sin is to idolize oneself. We're putting ourselves in, in that number one spot. We're trying to dethrone the rightful king. Uh, that uh, is absolute lawlessness. From there, he shows the contrast uh, uh, to lawlessness. What is the opposite of lawlessness? It is the perfect obedience to the law of God, and that is fulfilled in Christ. So lawlessness, sinfulness, he's, he's making them the same here, even though we might understand sin can be, you know, just a deficiency in, in certain regards. He's, he's talking about if we're living our lives constantly in sinfulness, we are practicing lawlessness because we have no regard for the law that's been laid out, no regard for the order that has been set down for what is a right and good life. Hmm. And so, I mean, I think you you were telling me that you were recently on the show "Thy Strong Word" with Pastor Phil Boo, and you talked about the Book of Judges. Yes. So when I when I think about the idea of sin as lawlessness, the the refrain that you get toward the end of the Book of Judges is that in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah. So. So the, the lawlessness, I mean, maybe, maybe there are rules that are out there that people try to follow, but there's no real standard. Everyone's just doing what he thinks is right. And so it, it's lawlessness. And when you've, when you've forsaken what God set up in his law, then really all you have left is sin. Right. Uh, if, if you're doing what is right in your own eyes, it means you're doing what is right in your own heart. And what does the Bible tell us in several places? Mm-hmm. Every inclination of man's heart is wicked all the time. And so that is lawlessness. There is, mm. the standard may have been there, but it is a faint echo now. And so it might sound like a liberating thing at the beginning of the book of Judges, but by the end, you realize this is the dregs of humanity. Things are not good where there is no king. Things are not good where the right king, the divine king, is not listened to. Mm. So everyone who makes a practice of sinning 
falls into this practice of lawlessness because those sin is lawlessness. Yeah. Then John takes us back to what Christ has done in contrast. So in verse yeah. 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So what's he what's he saying about Christ there? How does that affect the what, what we would practice? Yeah, well, right away, I mean, this is, you could call this Christ's mission statement or his purpose statement, right? His very purpose and nature stand in contrast to sin and lawlessness. He has come to remove sins. That is the reason for the incarnation. So what we're seeing here, it, are, it, it shows us how he's able to do this. He has no sin. A sinner cannot remove the sins of others because they are burdened with their own sin. Christ, on the other hand, is the only vessel capable of carrying our burden of sin because he la- because of his lack of sin. Right? Only he is sinless, so only he can redeem and atone for sin. That's that's the whole purpose of of what he's doing. From there, we get uh, we get build a, a building off of Christ's identity as the sin remover, and he incorporates it or incorporates the changes in our lives, the lives of believers, those who abide in him. Those who abide in Christ will not keep on sinning. Anyone who does keep on sinning has not seen the truth of Christ and does not have a relationship with him. On the faith face of it, it might be confusing or even cast doubt on a person's faith, right? That's kind of what we're getting. We really need to understand what is he talking about because, you know, if I look at it, in sort of just a, a trivial way, you know, I could find myself asking, well, I thought I believed, I, I thought I had faith, but I still struggle with sin. So is my faith false? Well, of course not. The idea here is continual, habitual sin without remorse, without guilt, without shame. They make a practice of sinning because that's what they do. They have no regard for what is right or true or beautiful. They are only going to engage in what is contrary to God. This is describing someone who shows no repentance. Everyone will struggle with sin. Everyone will fail against temptations from time to time. But when a Christian does fail or fall, they feel that remorse. They hate the sin and they struggle with it, and they confess that sin, seeking the mercy of God. They turn from their sin, and they turn toward God. That's literal repentance, to turn away. The struggle will continue as long as life endures, but so will God's mercy. That's what it is to abide in him. In our practice, not of continual sin, but rather of continual repentance, we are now made practitioners of righteousness. This again shows the process of sanctification, being renewed in his love over and over as we go through the trials of this life. We practice righteousness by turning away from that sin and turning towards the mercy of God. Hmm. Yeah. Again, this is where we need to keep John's words in context and let him you know, guide us as to what he means so that we don't take this verse out of its context and think, oh, he says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Well, I've sinned since <laughs> I came to faith, so I must be out. It's not what he's saying. Right. So if I can, I'm going to try to connect some of the dots, just sort of thinking out loud here. 
we've talked about the importance at the beginning of our text of abiding in Jesus yes. and, and all that that means, that that's where it starts. Well, working kind of backwards here into some of the things that John has already said in this epistle, he's talked about what it means to have fellowship, to have koinonia with Jesus, and to have fellowship with Jesus in chapter 1 was not to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light. And the way you walked in that light was precisely by, not by saying, I've never sinned, right? (laughs) The words that we say in the divine service, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if we say we've never sinned, then we're not having fellowship with Jesus and we're not abiding in him. So instead, as John says... Yeah, exactly. It's when we confess our sins that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we want to keep that in mind as we think about what John means here. He's not saying you you never sin again when you're a Christian, but he is saying you continue to abide in Christ and have fellowship with him mm-hmm. by confessing those sins, letting him cleanse you from unrighteousness. So that then, again, just to use John previously in chapter 2, John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So, I mean, John doesn't want you to sin. Jesus doesn't want you to keep sinning. Yeah. But then John says right after that, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right. right. So if, if we let John set the context for us with all of what we've read and really what we're going to keep reading in, in, pre, in coming texts, these things, they, they go together. He's not contradicting himself. He's just painting a picture in a different way than sometimes we're used to it being painted. Right. Yeah. We, we, we tend to, to look at it a little differently and that's unfortunate. I've seen this text correlated with James, right? When he talks about faith without works is dead. Uh, And that's absolutely right. That's what John's talking about. He's just doing it in a different way. Uh, This is about acknowledging that sin uh, and then trying to, get it out of our lives by, again, clinging to what God has already done for us in Christ. And yeah. John's being clear here. He, he wants he wants to help the people see the truth. And so he's warning against the false teachers who are leading people astray, maybe even with this very idea that, well, you're perfect now, or you should be perfect now that you have Christ. Uh, and, he, and John's going to pains by repeating this over and over again. That's not what it means practicing continuing in sin uh, is one thing continuing in righteousness is the opposite Uh, these teachers i don't know if it is you know pre-gnosticism so they're appealing to special knowledge and you're going to act this way and know these special things if you're continuing but he's he's trying to to help the people to to see what is right and what is wrong they know what is truly righteous and the lives of the faithful will reflect that Anyone who's claiming differently or trying to pass off something else as true righteousness is not a child of God. And John goes so far as to correlate these individuals with the devil. A devil means deceiver or accuser. And to say those who make a practice of sinning are the devil is to say they too are deceivers, accusing the children of God unjustly. And I, I love that you brought up the, the statement from John that we use in confession we deceive ourselves if we say we haven't sinned. That means we are being the deceiver. We are being the devil if we're trying to claim we don't sin. Um, and then again, John goes in this section here to repeat Christ's mission in case we forgot from just a, a few verses ago. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy those lies. 
to destroy those sins of deceit. Jesus is sent to destroy falsehood. He comes as the divine truth to cast out the deceiver. And that means the deceiver inside of each of us as well. Trusting his mission is to be wrapped in that truth. It drives the deceit from our lives, which is why we go through confession every time we have a worship service because we need it every time we have a worship service. We are constantly in the struggle with the sin in our lives and to practice righteousness, to abide in the word is to acknowledge that, to shine the light of truth on it and expose that sin so it can be removed from our lives. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, like, why, why wouldn't we want that sin to be removed? Right. Because the sin, the sin is the lie. The sin is darkness. The sin is bad for us. And that's what the light exposes. So that when we understand that Christ actually came to take that away from us and give us something better rather than the lawlessness that we would have in our sin, he gives us a, a good life an ordered life according to his, his law, that's what we should desire. You know, I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned the way James talks about this. We've got John talking about it here. It's very similar to the way Paul speaks in Romans five and six, which I'm pretty sure has been referenced on this show in first John already. But, you know, Paul talks about how, how we are justified by grace through faith. And then chapter six starts. So then maybe we should keep on sinning so that grace may abound. By no (laughs) means. Of course not. Yes. It's the strongest construction in the Greek language too, right? It's so emphatic. It's like he can't even, it's unthinkable. Yes, exactly. And and John's got that same idea here. Just to, you know, to, to keep it with the way John writes about such things, the idea that Jesus is the one who takes away sins yeah. reminds me of the confession of John the Baptist in John chapter one, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. So that he, you know, and, and I thought we often think about that in terms of forgiveness and rightly so, but to also think about it, look, here's the way of life that you had. Jesus is taking that bad way of life away from you and he's giving you something better. Yeah. Why not live in that? Why not practice that righteousness? That's the, I think that's all behind what John's writing here. Yeah. Agreed. So, so all of the, again, the practice of sinning that comes from the devil who is the liar. The son of God has appeared to destroy that deceit and that those lies. And then in verse nine, we come back to the language of being born of God again. So we have the children of God. And then John mentions, for God's seed abides in him. Take us into those last couple of verses. Yeah, so as the section draws to a close here, he's pointing out why children of God do not continue on in their, their lives of practicing sin. In verse 9, he says, it is because God's seed abides in them, and they have been born of God. So as you said, elsewhere in the New Testament, seed is a metaphor for the word of God. Several parables talk about this, right? You think of the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils. Um, Every time they're sowing seed, they're sowing the word. They're spreading the word. And then Jesus talks about a seed needing to die in order order to give its life for the plant. Um, That, I think, is really interesting when we then put it together with, with John's prologue in his gospel. So if the seed is a metaphor... For the word of God, John then identifies Jesus as the word of God. So the word of God is that seed in us. And that seed, that word, is Jesus himself. But Jesus' words about a seed having to die to bring life, that, what an incredible um, illustration of, of what 
to abide in Christ means to take his death and resurrection into us. That, uh, that life that we are given through his crucifixion is what changes everything. That's the seed, the word itself and all that it has done. Uh, I think with that, it's clear that those in whom the word of God abides cannot continue to sin. If they have the word in them, that seed that is the word, Jesus is the word. Jesus came to eradicate sin. And so that's what's going to happen in their lives. They cannot have the word of God in them and continue in habitual, blatant, unrepentant sinfulness. It just isn't possible. Jesus came to Again, eradicate that sin, and if we are abiding in him, our sin will be eradicated. It's also tied to our new identity. The the sinful person has died, and the new Christ-filled person is what has been born in its place. That's our reality. Our sinful nature has died on the cross with Christ, and as he is raised to new life, we are given that new life as well. We are born abiding in that seed, that word of God. It changes our lives to reflect the seed that is in us. And that's all by virtue of faith. So for a Christian, it is faith that makes them bearers of righteousness. It's not of our own doing. It's because of the love of God in us. Even our sanctification is not sourced within ourselves. It is brought out by the word working in us. John concludes with a final repetition of the the practicing righteousness idea. This time it clearly is correlated with acts of love for the brother, that is the neighbor. Those who abide in the word are made to reflect the love of God. A love is exercised in the works of love we perform for others. That is who we are. Not perfectly, right? Not the full, not yet, but now as well. Our faith is made evident by our love. No other relationship is possible between our actions and our faith. Faith breeds works, and works then demonstrate faith, not the other way around. They, it's the song, right? They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. It's the transformative power of God's love. It has made our identity as we abide in him. Pastor Jones, we have oh about three and a half minutes left on the morning. As we as you conclude today with this text from First John, we've talked a lot about what it means to be the ch- children of God and what that means for our lives. Help us to wrap things up. Give us the good news from this text. Yeah. So again, the passage a repetition of encouragement for believers. John points them and us again and again to the pattern of new lives in Christ. With the word in your life, you will no longer be a slave to sin. That practice, that continual sin is gone. Christ has liberated you. You are set free by his love. You know this is true by the love that you show to others. Your identity is now a child of God. Children will act in the way that their fathers have taught them and nurtured them. And if you've been nurtured in the love of God's righteousness, That righteousness is now seen in how you engage with those around you. That means you are his child. Christ's love was incarnate to take away sin, to destroy the works of the devil. And you are a living model of Christ's love. This means you seek to dispel that deceit from your lives. You repent of your sin. You seek to destroy it in your own life, and your life is changed to show it. Everywhere the people of God are pointed back, to Christ's word, work for on their behalf. 
with the works being the evidence, the good works, that is, being the evidence of their faith, not the producer of their faith. Salvation is the work of God, and the works that we do are the result. It is the identity we are graciously given, not one we earn by our own merits, as John is showing us over and over again. It's all the work of God in us. It is the abiding of that word within us that makes this happen. And so we continue to abide in him. And his love strengthens our identity, showing love to all and growing our confidence in who the Lord has called us to be. We are his beloved children, and so we are his children that show his love. Pastor Rick Jones is the chaplain and vice president of spiritual life at the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. He has been helping us today to study 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10. Pastor Jones, thanks for being our guest today. Absolutely. As I said, always a joy to be here. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the first epistle of St. John, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Next week on Sharper Iron and here on KFUO, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, that is April 27th, 28th, and 29th, we will be hosting share There will be special programming. We'll have special guests here on Sharper Iron for that Friday and, or Thursday and Friday. And we would love to have you join us and partner with us at KFUO to share the good news of Christ for you anytime, anywhere. That's share again next week, April 27th, 28th, and 29th. Thank you for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.